If you have your Bibles uh, with you, please open them to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, or a chair Bible, I guess, that's what we call them here. Um, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew tells us. And here we have uh, what's called the Beatitudes, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us uh, what the character of the kingdom looks like, the ethics of the kingdom, the way the kingdom that he is bringing, uh, which uh, the conference that our, our youth group is at right now is entitled Majnik, which is kingdom spelled backwards, this backwards kingdom, this up, upside-down kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating here. And we're going to focus particularly on verse 5, a very famous verse, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But we'll read uh, from chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 12, and then we'll, we'll try to, to dig in. So let's read God's word. Seeing the crowds, that is, Jesus seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountains, on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, we'll be focusing on verse 5, uh, but for now let's look... To God in prayer. Lord, we ask you to reveal your word to us and give us light so that we can live. Help us to understand and live out uh, this hard teaching of our master. It's by his grace and in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, the most famous teacher in the history of the world is Jesus Christ. And probably the most famous part of his teaching is the Sermon on the Mount, and probably the most famous part of the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes. And maybe the most well-known of the Beatitudes would be our verse, chapter five, or verse 5, Blessed are the meek. It's famous, it's well-known, it's well-heard, uh, but how does it sound? I want to ask several questions this morning. But the first question I want to ask is, how does this teaching sound to the world? To those that don't know Christ or who don't follow Christ, how does this teaching sound to them? And I would say that at best to the world, Jesus' teaching, blessed are the meek, sounds naive. At best, the world thinks your Savior and his teaching are naive. I'll give you an example. When I was in middle school, I played basketball. I was a power forward slash center. Actually, I was a point guard. Um, but another player on, on my team, his name was Nick Galloway, and uh, he wore a T-shirt sometimes to practice, and on that T-shirt was Charles Barkley. 
And uh, if you don't know who Charles Barkley is, back when I was in middle school, he was uh, an all-star every year and was sort of known for being this rough, tough player, and particularly for being the rebound king of the NBA. And Charles Barkley from Alabama um, had a roll tide. Um, he had a, uh, this angry look on his face, and he's holding a basketball with both arms, flexing his huge muscles with a caption that reads, The meek may inherit the earth, but they won't get the ball. <laughs> it's probably true in the NBA. It was certainly true on my middle school basketball team. But think about it. In sports, Jesus, this, this teaching doesn't make sense. The meek get the inheritance? I doubt it. We'll take it beyond sports. Think about the self-help books. Go to Barnes & Noble. Go to the self-help section, and you'll, you'll find books about assertiveness training. Your biggest problem is that you need to be more assertive and express yourself and get your own way. Um, in the dog-eat-dog -dog world of business, many of you know this challenge. Imagine trying to apply meekness when in the world you know that the way to get ahead is to promote yourself, to take credit for the project well done, to fight your way in. And our society celebrates greatness, strength, power, force, ability, the way up is not to be meek, but it's to be rich, thin, tan, and to bleach your teeth. <laughs> not to be humble, but to promote yourself. Jesus, this is a sweet sentiment, but I'm almost expecting you to say, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. This is a wonderful doctrine for losers, maybe. But could it really be true? Jesus, you're naive. I think at best to the world, this teaching sounds Naive. At best, naive, but at worst, it's oppressive. It's oppressive. What do I mean by oppressive? Uh, the famous statement by Karl Marx that religion is the opiate of the masses, the founder of communism. If Karl needed a proof text, he need look no farther than Matthew 5 5. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. When I was in college, I wrote my senior thesis on two Marxist or communist historians from the 1960s. They were members of the radical left, and they both wanted to start an American revolution, a red revolution, through the writing of history. Now, there were two of them. Oh, there were many, but these two in particular that I focused on in my paper. One was a man by the name of Stoughton Lind. And Stoughton Lind was a historian by day, but an activist by night. And he believed that the purpose of the writing of history was to push the agenda of the left, to push his radical agenda. And so he would systematically choose and intentionally uh, select evidence in such a way to demonstrate the truths of Marxism. Uh, not by necessity, not saying no one can be objective, so we have to do it this way, but it was part of the agenda. And that was the purpose of the writing of history, to serve the radical left. Uh, the other historian, not Stoughton Lind, but Eugene Genovese, uh, was a more conservative radical leftist um, who believed, yes, history does ultimately serve the agenda of the radical left, but not that way. Uh, he basically argued this, Marxism is true, therefore if I do a good job and be as, as objective as I possibly can in the writing of history, then the truth will out, and Marxism will be demonstrated, and I will convince other people that Karl Marx was right and that America needs to be turned upside down. So that's what he set out to do. 
he wanted to look at the slave South. Where else would you expect to see Marx's truth demonstrated? How do you keep the slaves weak? You tell them that their weakness is their strength, don't you? You tell them that their meekness is their greatness. Tell them to stay in their place, not ask questions, because God's put them there anyway. And really, the suffering that they have is really a blessing. It's quite clever, isn't it? It seems like that's what you would expect to find. And that's what Eugene Genovese set out to do. For Staltonland and Eugene Genovese, the teachings of Jesus, they weren't just naive. They're oppressive. That's how it sounds to the world. Now, I didn't take a survey as you all came in, but my hunch is that the majority of the people in the room are not communists. (laughs) Certainly not of the radical sort. So I want to ask a second question, not just how does it sound to the world, but how does it sound to the church? Now, I doubt any of us would say that Jesus is being oppressive, but I think that still, like the world, at best, we think he's naive. How does it sound in the church, at best, naive? If you don't believe me, I'll give you an example. A few years ago, uh, I was sitting at a table while, uh, at a community dinner, and uh, some close friends of mine were sitting uh, at a table behind me. And at that point, uh, Lance Armstrong was about halfway through uh, his, his uh, streak of seven victories uh, in the Tour de France. And he had overcome cancer and the Live Strong agenda to, to help raise money for, for uh, cancer survivors and to, to, to help cure cancer uh, was, was rising. Uh, he was in the spotlight, and this was before the whole Sheryl Crow embarrassment. And they were talking about him and just saying they had seen him in an interview, and he was so humble, like he just he could really, you know, did well in his interview. A nice guy, an all-American, a real winner winning smile. And as they were talking about how great he was and just how much they admired him, they said, you know, these were Christians amongst themselves, they said, you know, he would make such a good Christian. There was awkward laughter. Um, And I think they caught themselves, but in that moment they really meant it. And I heard it too, and so often I think that way as well. We need a winner We need someone good, someone powerful, someone the world respects and admires, a real Lance Armstrong. Um, Go to a Christian bookstore, pick up a book on how to grow a church, and it'll tell you how to find the winners, how to find the leaders, the movers, and the shakers, the opinion leaders, and the opinion makers in a community, and how to target those focus groups and get them in your church. And that's the key to church growth. That's how the kingdom will come. Say so many of the books. Because we think we need Lance Armstrong on our team. And just think of the way the Christian community reacted when one of the Baldwin brothers converted. I think it was Steve. Steve Baldwin, the actor. Wow, we've got Steve Baldwin on our team now. Just think if we could get Alec. Saw him say that in an interview. People consistently say this to him. Hey, if we can, we can get your brothers, then you know we'll have Hollywood on the ropes. 
I like winners. I like people like me. I like the cut of their jib, a real Lance Armstrong that I want on my side, a real major player. But that's only one way it sounds. I'd say at best in the church it sounds naive. But at worst, Jesus is teaching that blessed are the meek is an excuse. It's an excuse. What do I mean by an excuse? See, I think it's easy to say, yes, Jesus is right. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the small. Blessed are the humble. Therefore, God must not expect very much out of me or my church. And so I can be faithful in little tiny ways, inch by inch, day by day, but God doesn't really anticipate greatness, change, cultural transformation from us. And I say it's worse than thinking he's naive because at least here we're claiming to take what he's saying at face value. So if we say he's naive, we sort of dismiss it and move along. But here we say, yes, that's true, but now I'm going to twist it. And I'm going to apply it my way to let myself off the hook. And we do this all the time. Uh, Growing up, uh, I grew up in Alabama as well, in Tuscaloosa. And um, went to a small church. And it is the tendency of small churches, if they're going to be on one end of the spectrum or the other, is to be on the excuse end. There was a woman in our church. Her name was Mary Edna Anders. Uh, She was single her entire life. And as a child, she was crippled by polio. She lived the majority of her life uh, an agnostic or an atheist, not believing in God, but she was converted later in her life, in her 70s. And she came to our church. And uh, all, all, all the years that I knew her, as I was, as a small child, she used a walker uh, because of, of her disability because of polio. Uh, but week after week, she was there. And I can remember one moment um, when I was probably five years old, running around with my five-year-old friends doing our thing, running through the lobby, and Mrs. Anders stopped me. She said, Ben, because she always loved, she loved me for some reason, and she would always talk to me. She said, Ben, come here. She said, I want to thank you. She had a great nephew who was my age and a friend of mine. She said, a few weeks ago, I wanted to take little Christopher out for lunch, and I asked you where we should go and what you would want to do if you were him. And you told me that I should take him to McDonald's and buy him a happy meal. And that's what I did. And he loved it. Thank you very much. I didn't remember giving this advice. (laughs) She was a well-educated woman. She didn't need my advice. And yet, she stooped down, looked me in the eye, and thanked me genuinely for the little contribution I had made as a five-year-old. And in growing up, it was always that way with Miss Anders. I received card after card from her. Dear Ben, I saw that you received honorable mention in the fourth grade science fair project. (laughs) You know, it was in your school newspaper. God has given you a great mind. Use it for him. Love, Mary Edna Anders. With a little newspaper clipping with my name highlighted, I received so many of those cards See, all these things are small, handwritten notes, and yet I could see, even in her handwriting, the shake of her hand. It took effort. It was small, but it was no excuse. 
It took effort just to get out of her car, to get out of her bed and come up the sidewalk to church to lean over and look in my eyes. A few years back, uh, Mrs. Anders passed away. And my father, who was a minister, is a minister, is a minister had the privilege of, of preaching at her funeral. And it was a room a little smaller than this sanctuary, and it was standing room only. Every seat was full, and there were people standing along the aisles and standing along the back. And I, I couldn't be there, unfortunately. But my father asked at one point, raise your hand if you ever received a card from Mary Edna. 95% of the hands went up all over the room. And there were tears in every eye because she had had such a remarkable impact through all the little things. See, for her, blessed are the meek was no excuse. Was she big? Was she flashy? No, but she made a difference. And yet, when you look in a church growth book, you'll find ways to find movers and shakers and opinion makers, but you will not find a chapter on 85-year-old polio victims. Why not? And yet, if I'm choosing teams, and I think you'll agree with me, if you're choosing teams for the kingdom of God at this point, I'll take Mary Edna Anders in a stack of stationery over Lance Armstrong and his Schwinn any day of the week. But that's not how we naturally think, is it? And that's not what the books say. And since that's not our natural way to think, and since that's not what the books say, we have to ask a third question. Why is that? Why don't we have those chapters? And the answer is because we still don't get it. We still don't understand. And so we need to ask, not just how does it sound to the world and how does it sound to the church, but how does it sound through the gospel? How does the teaching of Jesus sound through the gospel? And I would say at first it sounds impossible. At first it sounds impossible. Blessed are the meek. And you may be thinking, as, as I am, I'm not like Miss Mary Edna Anders. I'm not meek. And if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, to which the, the Beatitudes is the gateway, you, you can't get far thinking that you've, you've fulfilled it, that you've done it. Where Jesus says that to, to call your brother a fool is the same as killing him. To look at a woman the wrong way is the same as committing adultery. And we know again and again that none of us measures up at first. This is impossible. I'm not meek. So often I want to seek my self-advancement. I want to get attention for myself, and if I do something well, I want credit and a pat on my back. And I will interrupt you in a conversation because I think that what I have to say is more important than what you're saying. And if you cut me off in a conversation, I'm angry. And if you cut me off in traffic, I'm livid. <laughs> my guess is you're the same way. I want to scratch and claw and bite and push my way to that rebound because I'm going to get the ball, I'm going to get the inheritance, and I'm going to make it mine, and I'm going to make it my way. Blessed are the meek. It's impossible. And when I see that it's impossible, then I have to remember not just the teaching, but who it is that's giving this teaching. In my Bible, these are red letters. Because they're the words of Jesus. The impossibility of the teaching drives me to the teacher. The source of the doctrine is what drives the doctrine. Jesus, the meek one with a capital M, the one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
though he could have, but took the very form of a man and humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. The one who came down, who condescended to us, who went to the cross for us. It drives me to the foot of the cross to say, I need you because this is impossible. Your teaching is too much for me to handle, and I need you. So at first it sounds impossible, but at last, through the gospel, it sounds inevitable. Inevitable. Inevitable that God's people would become meek. Um, That sounds a little strong, maybe a little overly optimistic, but I don't think it is. I think it's impossible to come face-to-face with the gospel without being humbled, without being made a little bit meeker. I remember uh, our first year at seminary, uh, Dawn and I were, were transitioning in, and there was a time where uh, neither of us had a job. Uh, Dawn had not yet found a job, and school was starting up for me, and we didn't have any source of income, and our savings were running out fast. And I was also going through a transition period. I had been a youth pastor for a few years in a small church in Georgia, and I was sort of reflecting on that time and thinking back about how you know, there were just so many regrets that I had, so many ways in which I could have served those people better, uh, so many ways where I could have been more humble, so many ways where I could have been a better friend to my friends, where I could have reached out in ways that I didn't. And I was just sort of thinking through all those things, and one day a card came in the mail from a member of that church, and uh, we weren't quite sure how we were going to make the budget. And I opened up the card, and out of the envelope fell a check, and I picked it up. And I won't tell you the exact amount, but basically it was enough to cover almost three months' rent from a family in this church where I had felt like I had really kind of let them down in so many ways. And I remember at that moment I couldn't believe it. I was literally floored. And when I say literally floored, I don't mean figuratively floored. I mean, I actually, there was no chair around. I had to lay down on the floor, on our hardwood floor. I couldn't believe it. I just laid down on my back. And I was overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude, yes, and thankfulness, but also an overwhelming sense in a good way that I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. How can they give me such an extravagant gift? And that's how it is with the gospel. When we see all that you've received in Jesus Christ, when you come to the foot of the cross and see that the coming of the kingdom, and it's right here in the teaching itself, blessed are the meek, For they shall inherit the earth. The entire new heavens and new earth will be ours if we are in Christ. And we don't deserve it at all. It's overwhelming. It inevitably produces humility. And when I see that inheritance, when I see everything that I've been given in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden when I know the new heavens and the new earth are all mine, all of a sudden I don't have to bite and scratch and claw my way to my inheritance. I don't need it. Anything this world has to offer is icing on the cake. Not even icing on the cake. It's the sprinkles on the cake that you can't even taste. It's nothing. Because I've got the whole thing in Jesus. I've got the whole thing in the new earth. Jesus has done it for me, and I don't need to add anything. Just humbly receive. I want to return to my senior thesis. I've got to get some mileage out of this. I wrote this paper. I've got to use it. And... uh, Eugene Genovese, the one who sought to study the slave South, uh, found something surprising. Now, to his credit, he was a good historian, and he wanted to treat the slave South, both sides, the slaves 
and, uh, and the slaveholders. He wanted to treat them fairly. He wanted to read stories about them from their perspective. And he found something surprising. Something surprising because there was something that his Marxist worldview didn't count on. And that was the possibility that maybe the gospel was true. He found two things. First, as he studied the life of the slaves, the spiritual lives of the slaves in the South, the gospel was anything but impressive. In fact, it was liberating. The opposite. In the, in the gospel, and especially in the story of the Exodus, that picture of the gospel, the slaves found a sense of value and worth in the eyes of the creator of the universe. They found dignity, and they found a concept of being set free from oppression. The very opposite of what a Marxist would expect to find. So much so that that was part of the spark, part of the fuel that would ignite from the bottom up their freedom, according to Genovese, eventually. The second thing he did not expect to find was the impact of the gospel on the ruling class, on the bourgeois, and how uh, he read theologians and ministers who, though some of what they would say would probably embarrass almost everyone in this room in terms of their attempt to defend slavery, and by no means do not hear me at all defending American slavery in the slightest bit. But what he did find was this. Authors like Thornwell and Dabney and other Southern theologians were calling for change. They were not calling for cruelty, but they were actually suggesting such a radical redefinition of slavery that it would almost not even, wouldn't have even looked like the slavery as it was. And while we wish they would have gone a few steps further, he still saw the impact of the gospel, a gospel transformation taking place in both classes, bringing them together. And he speculates over whether or not they would have come together uh, without interference. I, in some ways, would doubt that, but perhaps. But here's what he didn't see. That's, that's what he didn't expect to find. He didn't count on the fact that there's a God who is there and who's not silent and has broken into history and is in the process of changing lives. And as he continued to study this over the years and years and years, by the mid-90s, as he started a, a communist in the 1960s who believed there was no God and that religion was inherently oppressive, he now calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ because he saw something in both sides that he couldn't deny and that that was God was at work that God was at work and that God was changing culture. Because remember the context. Jesus is preaching the kingdom, the backwards kingdom. His message is fundamentally subversive to the world order as we typically conceive it. He has a mind to change and transform hearts to establish a kingdom of meekness until one day it's fulfilled. Until one day... He comes back, and we will see him as he is, and we will finally, fully be meek, and we will inherit the whole earth in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please cause us to live in humility and transform our lives by your gospel so that we can be a part of spreading that beautifully upside-down kingdom as you continue to work and you change hearts, lives, cultures, nations, the world. It's the name of our humble 
shepherd, King Jesus, that we come to you and we pray. Amen. Now let's stand together and sing a song of humility. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's stand together.